ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. Roberts. And now for today's environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Thursday. November 18th. I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. A recent study from FarmWeek, an online agriculture publication, has found that the reduction of pesticides by Hoosier farmers will increase the number of bees that pollinate crops and thus increase crop yields. When pesticides were applied only when desperately needed, the bees were able to survive and continue to pollinate. The research was conducted over a four-year period on various watermelon patches throughout the state and in environments that replicated the average agricultural field for Hoosier farmers. The study found that there was a definitive increase of 26% in average crop yields once pesticides were reduced and only applied when needed. Over 17 state parks throughout Indiana are shutting down for the beginning of deer hunting season. The hunts are scheduled for November 15th to 16th and November 29th to 30th. With no natural predators present in the state, deer have taken over large parts of Indiana's forests and are even found walking through more urbanized areas. The annual deer hunts began in 1993 to deal with this problem, with over 1,243 deer killed last year in Indiana state parks. Some wildlife biologists believe that these hunts are necessary to ensure balance within Indiana ecosystem and allow native plants to thrive. Last week, Indiana University students and faculty held a climate change panel at Indiana Memorial Union. This meeting coincides with the Student Involvement and Leadership Center's monthly panels that seek to address local issues that affect the Bloomington and the Monroe County area. More specifically, there was an emphasis on climate justice and how more marginalized communities are more likely to be affected by the worst aspects of climate change. This includes people with disabilities and the elderly. There was also discussion on how to best deal with the often distressing climate change news that shows a dark vision of the future. The panelists told participants to remain optimistic and to believe that the work from the local community all the way to United Nations can help prevent the worst aspects of climate change. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. In today's feature report, Indiana Environmental Reporters Enrique Sanz talks about EPA plans to tackle lead pollution in tap water. That's coming up later in the program. And now for your headline stories. The Tribune Star reports that Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area in Linton 
has completed installation of additional displays at its visitor center. They include information about wetland habitats and migratory birds, as well as interactive features that highlight other wildlife that can be found at the property, such as fur-bearing mammals and macroinvertebrates. There's also a display on how managers control water levels in wetlands. Development and installation of the displays were made possible through a partnership with the Friends of Goose Pond, who donated mounted birds for the flyway exhibit. The flyway display includes a sandhill crane, American pelican, and snow goose. Additional partners who made the displays possible include Duke Energy and the Indiana Wildlife Federation. Visitors to Goose Pond FWA's Visitor Center can see the new displays Monday through Saturday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and Sunday from noon to 5 p.m. The center is located near Linton. The distinctive sound of sandhill cranes is heard in northwest Indiana, spanning two counties, the Jasper, Pulaski Fish and Wildlife Area becomes the pit stop for thousands of sandhill cranes on their fall journey south. Although this land is essential for the species' survival, many people don't even know about this gem off the beaten path. They're a noisy bunch as they gather each morning and evening in the protected fields of the wildlife area. The honking continues from September through December each year as more cranes continue to show up to socialize and gather food. Thousands of cranes move out of the area and head farther south towards the Gulf states by the end of December, but recently many cranes remain. They take advantage of a nearby power plant where they find open water year-round. In recent years, more birds are not migrating as far as Florida because winters are so mild. Recently, crane numbers have struggled. Many of their wetland homes have been or are being destroyed, like the Grand Kankakee Marsh. The Grand Kankakee Marsh was once the largest inland wetland in the U.S. The wetland started to be drained after the Civil War to create more farmland. The draining activities continued and were so extensive that today there is little left of the marsh. WTIU announced that air tests in the area affected by the November 5th control burn on South High Street showed no lead dust contamination, according to a press release from the city. The tests were conducted by Environmental Assurance Company, Incorporated, and VET, VET Environmental Engineering. The two companies were contracted by the city to clean up lead-contaminated paint chips and ash that fell on the area from the burn. The air tests, which are required by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, consisted of employees wearing devices that took constant air readings during their entire shift working in the area, according to the release. It also said surface wipe samples taken prior to the rain on November 11th also had non-detectable lead levels. Testing results of soil samples and other materials collected last week in the affected areas are expected to be available by week's end to provide more information about lead levels, the press release said. The release said testing was conducted throughout the area defined in the map created by the Indiana Department of Environmental Management and the city that was released last week. A second round of remediation on the affected area will be done this week. The contractor teams are focusing on removing any remaining debris from surfaces that people and pets most frequently come in contact with, including sidewalks, driveways, hand railings, mailboxes, playsets, patios, and decks. 
Crews are also performing general yard cleanup with an emphasis on food producing gardens and play areas. Remediation is expected to be completed by the end of next week. Recent weeks have brought some good news for wolves after a slew of bad news, with several states conducting hunts of them. For decades, since the effort to bring back Mexican gray wolves to the U.S. Southwest began, the federal government imposed a cap on their populations. Once the wolves' numbers reached 325, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said it would trap and shoot what it called excess animals. Now, after a 2018 legal victory by the Center for Biological Diversity and its allies, the service plans to drop the population cap. Its new proposed rule could also temporarily curb federally authorized and private wolf killing even before the population reaches 325. At last count, 186 wolves roamed Arizona and New Mexico. There's good news for Wisconsin's gray wolves, too, at least for now. After ruling that the state's November 6th wolf hunt was unconstitutional, a Wisconsin judge halted the hunt plan, dropping the quota for wolves to be killed from 130 to zero. The news will spare Wisconsin's wolves from slaughter for the time being, but this ruling isn't permanent. If a judge decides the state's plans for a wolf hunt are legal, the killing could start right back up. Wisconsin conducted its last wolf hunt this past February, and Environmental Action called it a bloodbath. The hunt was the first one since gray wolves lost their national protections under the Endangered Species Act in the fall of 2020. Before the hunt began, the state's Department of Natural Resources set the hunt's quota at 119 wolves. But in less than 72 hours, hunters killed 218 of the animals. Wolves all across the lower 48 won't be truly safe until restoration of their protections under the Endangered Species Act. ConocoPhillips Willow Master Development Plan was to be the largest oil and gas drilling project in the Alaskan Arctic and to be located in a vast, biodiverse landscape in the Western Arctic. In late October, the Biden administration secured a climate victory by not appealing a federal district court decision halting the project. Previously, the administration had defended the plan in court, but it didn't file an appeal against the court's decision by the deadline. In August, a federal judge rejected permits for the Willow Project, concluding that the government's environmental analysis failed to sufficiently consider the project's climate impacts. The court ordered the administration to conduct a new environmental review, so it must now start over with a reevaluation that devotes careful attention to climate and other environmental concerns. Quote, the administration's move not to appeal the lower court's decision to stop Willow is a victory for protecting the Arctic and combating the climate crisis, end quote, said Haley Templeton, legal director of Friends of the Earth. She went on to say, quote, we urge federal officials to go further and stop new oil gas leasing on public lands and waters in the Arctic and beyond, end quote. If the Willow Project had been implemented as planned, it would have helped accelerate the climate crisis by releasing enough greenhouse gas emissions to equal those of 66 coal-fired power plants operating for a year. Will infrastructure plans include plastic highways? Perhaps. They have been used in India for two decades. A newly repaved stretch of highway in Oroville, California, looks like an ordinary road. 
but it's the first highway in the country to be paved in part with recycled plastic, the equivalent <coughs> of roughly 150,000 plastic bottles per mile of the three-lane road. The change in materials makes the pavement stronger. The new pavement relies on plastic binder for strength and rock for filler. The new type of road resists potholes and cracking and can last two to three times longer than standard asphalt. The highway in Oroville used only plastic bottles as binder, but other countries are using a broad spectrum of plastics. U.S. Senators have the opportunity to support the Monarch Action, Recovery, and Conservation of Habitat, or Monarch Act, to help save the vanishing populations of western monarch butterflies. These pollinators need all the help they can get because they're on the brink of extinction. Forty years ago, 4.5 million western monarchs migrated along the Pacific coast. Two years ago, just under 30,000 did so. Last year, the number declined to fewer than 2,000. The Monarch Act would designate $125 million toward the conservation of monarch butterflies and other pollinators. The act would fully fund the Western Monarch Butterfly Conservation Plan, the goal of which is to tackle the loss of overwintering, breeding, and migratory habitat for Western monarchs. Some Western monarchs migrate more than a thousand miles up and down the West Coast in search of milkweed, which provides a safe place to spend the winter and propagate. Since the climate crisis is making winter weather increasingly variable, monarchs are struggling to survive and hatch new generations. By protecting monarch habitat, the Monarch Act would help the endangered Western monarchs survive the winter, safely hatch their caterpillars, and form their delicate chrysalises to come forth as the beautiful creatures we all know and love. It's a well-known fact that burning fossil fuels is destroying the climate, but it's a lesser-known fact that plastics are contributing heavily to climate destruction. In fact, a new study from Bennington College's Beyond Plastics think tank has found that by the end of this decade, plastics will create more climate pollution than coal does in the U.S plastics already produced this 3.8 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions throughout their life cycle which is composed of production usage and disposal that's roughly double the emissions from airplanes quote when most people think of the plastic problem they think of water pollution and the fact that plastic recycling has been such a failure they don't think about climate change but this is a significant and growing source of greenhouse gas emissions, end quote, said Judith Inc., the president of Beyond Plastics, who previously was regional administrator at the Environmental Protection Agency for eight years. <coughs> According to Inc., writing in the introduction to the Bennington Report, the demand for fossil fuels is decreasing as countries begin to end burning fossil fuels for power and transportation. She said the fossil fuel industry is desperate, relying increasingly on plastics to replace the market for burning fossil fuels. Plastics don't figure at all on the global climate justice agenda. The Biden administration's plan to decarbonize the U.S. economy pays no attention to the plastics industry's contribution to the climate crisis. The imperiled northern spotted owl has won a reprieve. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service moved Tuesday to reverse a Trump administration decision that would have opened millions of acres of the owl's west coast forest habitat to potential logging, arguing that Trump 
political appointees acted on inaccurate science. The northern spotted owl is a small chocolate brown bird that lives in the forests of Washington, Oregon, and Northern California. The bird is considered threatened under the Endangered Species Act and has already lost around 70% of its habitat. In the past decades, the owl's population has plummeted 77% in Washington, 68% in Oregon, and nearly 50% in California. The environmental news for, from Montana isn't good. Last month, the state's Department of Environmental Quality stopped enforcing its so-called bad actor law against Hecla Mining Company and its CEO, Phillips S. Baker. The bad actor law was passed in 2001 to prevent mining executives from obtaining a new permit to mine in Montana if they failed to clean up their past mining messes. Baker was a senior executive at Pegasus Gold when it abandoned three highly toxic cyanide leach gold mines. The Zortman Landusky mines have cost the state of Montana over $30 million in cleanup cost and destroyed the land and water in the Little Rocky Mountains. Now Baker has returned to Montana as the CEO of Hecla, proposing two new mines that severely threaten the water and wildlife in the northwest part of the state. The nonprofit Earth Justice and Environmental Allies are challenging the Department of Environmental Quality's decision to ignore the law against corporate bad actors. Critics of the decision are demanding that Montana Governor Greg Jeanforte enforce the law. And now for our feature Indiana Environmental Reporters, Enrique Sands reports on EPA plans to tackle lead pollution in tap water. For most of us, clean water is a given. We get thirsty, head to the tap or the fridge, and just pour some of that crystal clear gold right into your cup. But for some, especially for people who live, work, or play in older buildings, clean water is certainly not a given. In older homes, there's a chance pipes, service lines, or other fixtures could be exposing you to lead. The most lead-contaminated neighborhoods and cities are often the poorest and have the highest percentage of non-white children. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has released a draft version of its new strategy to reduce lead exposures in communities around the country and said it will seek input from the communities most affected by lead contamination. Critics welcome the call for input saying the plan in its current state does not do enough to cite specific actions the federal government will take to ensure the lead problems present for decades in places like East Chicago, Hammond, and Indianapolis are finally addressed. The EPA strategy to reduce lead exposures and disparities in U.S. communities sets wide-ranging goals to reduce lead exposure in homes, childcare facilities, drinking water, and from pollution emissions. EPA Administrator Michael Reagan said communities disproportionately affected by lead contamination have waited too long for action, and the Biden administration will work to eliminate the stark inequities in children's environmental health across the country. The plan includes general guidelines for accomplishing these goals called approaches that highlight the authority EPA and partner agencies have to achieve these goals. But groups supporting the Biden administration's goal to reduce lead exposure said the plan is, quote, woefully short on specifics. Julian Gonzalez, legislative counsel for Earth Justice, said the EPA plan commits to being based in science, to centering equity concerns, and to strengthening enforcement, which would be a welcome change regarding EPA-led regulations, he said. But Gonzalez said the EPA must explain how it intends to apply those principles when regulating lead and water. 
Earth Justice said the EPA's plan states problems with great detail but does not say how it will address those issues. The group points to the agency's goals like the reduction of exposure to lead from drinking water sources. Lead can enter drinking water through old pipes, solder, faucets, and fixtures. In adults, lead can cause increased blood pressure, hypertension, and other cardiovascular effects along with decreased kidney function and reproductive problems. In children, lead can cause behavioral and learning problems, lower IQ, hyperactivity, slowed growth, and hearing problems. Black children and children from low-income families have average blood lead levels 13% higher than the national average. Cities like East Chicago, Fort Wayne, Goshen, Indianapolis, Mishawaka, and South Bend, and even major regional water providers like Indiana American Water have continued finding lead service lines over the years, even after decades of use. The EPA said it would eliminate all lead drinking water pipes and service lines in the United States with funding from the American Jobs Plan, most of which was included in the recently passed Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, a $1.2 trillion infrastructure package with about $27 billion allotted for the replacement of lead service lines and pipes. The EPA said it would distribute loans and grants to upgrade water systems, remove lead service lines, and support training and technical assistance to test drinking water for lead. It will prioritize communities with the highest lead levels and those with environmental justice concerns. Gonzalez said the plan should note how it plans to replace lead service lines regardless of what funding levels are allocated by Congress, or else another generation of children will be drinking lead-contaminated water. A factor that could complicate the plan's approach is that very few communities have a complete list of lead service lines still in use, and there has never been a record of lead lines installed in homes. Gabriel Filippelli, director of the Center for Urban Health at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, said communities started mapping service lines construction in the 1970s and 1980s. We actually have absolutely no idea where, you know, where most of these service lines might be. Filippelli said he believes the EPA's plan should include funding for better risk assessment tools. He said one of the only ways to know whether there's a lead problem is if a child is found with an elevated blood lead level. I think we have very inadequate understanding of the distribution of lead in soils and paint and water. And what clearly we can't test, you know, five million soil samples from around the state. That just doesn't work that way. Filippelli said he and other researchers are working on a questionnaire to detect potential lead exposure that is about 75% accurate. IUPUI also partnered with faith leaders of the Indianapolis Ministerium to distribute free anonymous lead testing kits to learn more about the distribution of contaminated soil in Indianapolis. The EPA said it would provide more details on implementation and update the strategy after it receives public comments on the proposal. The plan will also most likely include the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's recently updated blood lead reference value, a screening value to identify children with higher levels of lead in their blood compared to most other children. The CDC recently reduced the reference value from 5 micrograms per deciliter to 3.5 micrograms per deciliter, the lowest level that can currently be commonly accurately measured in a clinical setting. The value serves as a guideline for state and other local authorities to set their own action levels for children and could serve as a trigger for future action by the EPA. The Indiana State Department of Health's reference value for action is 10 micrograms per deciliter, but the state allows county health departments to act when lower blood lead levels are present. Philip Pelli, who also serves as executive director of Indiana University's Environmental Resilience Institute, said the new reference value will allow nearly all children who show positive results to be referred for follow-up testing. The new reference value could also affect EPA standards for lead in household paint and soil and air emissions, which could further complicate how the EPA prioritizes contamination sites. The EPA will accept public comments on the proposed strategy until January 26 online and by mail. You can check out our website, indianaenvironmentalreporter.org, for that information. The final lead strategy will be released sometime in 2020.
For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for our events calendar. A virtual greening, the State House two-day event sponsored by the Hoosier Environmental Council is scheduled for Friday, November the 19th and Saturday, November the 20th. You can participate virtually in the largest annual gathering of environmentally-minded Hoosiers. Program sessions begin at noon on Friday and end on Saturday at 4 p.m. To learn more about greening the State House and to register, go to hecweb.org. It's time for the full beaver moon. Make plans now to take a full beaver moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Friday, November 19th from 7 to 9 p.m. Listen to the sounds of the night with your guide, Anthony, as he shares the history and lore of the full beaver moon. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center to hike Trail 5. Just to let you know, later in the early morning hours, you have the opportunity to view an eclipse of the full moon, the longest eclipse this year. At the Griffey Lake Nature Preserve on Saturday, November 20th, from 12.30 to 2.30 p.m., you have the opportunity to learn about natural rope and plant cordage. This ancient skill was used to make durable rope long before paracord. This hands-on program will teach you how to find, identify, and process plants to make your own rope. Meet at the Boathouse. Please register at bloomington.in.gov parks. The second annual Holiday Hiking Challenge will take place on Thursday, November 25th, Friday, November 26th, Saturday, November 27th, and Sunday, November 28th. All dates have hours between 7 a.m. and 6 p.m. Forget about shopping and holiday stress and spend your time outside exploring all of Monroe, Count, uh, Monroe Lake's trails and completing challenge activities. Prizes will be awarded. Details, instructions, and a map will be available on the event page on Wednesday, November 24th. Go to https colon uh, slash slash bit dot ly slash 2021 hyphen Monroe hyphen hike hyphen challenge. A program about surviving the winter will be offered at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, November 27th from 10 to 10.45 a.m. We as humans change our clothes for the weather. We spend more time inside by the fire or we relocate to a warmer climate area. Well, what do animals do? Meet at the Nature Center to find out.
And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman assembled the script and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly completed our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly, and I would like to wish everyone coming up is the Thanksgiving holiday, and have a wonderful time. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. <laughs>